Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, though, we take a look at BC's energy system. Wasn't this very interesting? What we saw on the weekend here, we set a record in British Columbia for power demand. We set the record on Friday, 11,300 megawatts. This was the record demand for power, of course, with the cold temperatures driving up that demand. BC Hydro says they were ready for this. They met the demand with no power imports required, and we even had enough left over to send next door to Alberta, which issued a series of grid alerts as their system really under the strain with the cold weather. Okay, does that mean the BC energy system has all the power that we need? No, not quite. Remember, last year, BC was a net importer of power, 20% imported from outside of BC. That demand expected to drive up. Don't forget, we have all that demand for new electricities. We're going to 100% electric vehicle sales in BC by 2035. Demand for energy going up everywhere across the province, including in the Okanagan, where we have a lot of listeners. And isn't this interesting that the BC Utilities Commission recently turned down an application to expand a natural gas pipeline there? $327 million project here to expand natural gas service in the Okanagan. This was an application from Fortis, of course, the big natural gas power utility. Uh, Very disappointed they were that this this, uh, application was turned down. They said they needed this expanded pipeline capacity because of the demand for natural gas in the Okanagan. I've got John Rustad standing by to discuss. We broke this story for you on the show. I was speaking to Barry Penner, the former environment minister, now chair of Energy Futures Initiative. Here he is talking about this pipeline being rejected by the BC Utilities Commission. Listen to this. The Utilities Commission in British Columbia rejected a plan by Fortis BC to upgrade the natural gas supply system in the Okanagan. Uh, It was a $327 million project, no government dollars involved, so it wouldn't be adding to the provincial debt. They wanted to build $327 million worth of extra capacity, upgrade the lines to support the real strong growth you're seeing in population in West Bank, Kelowna, all the way up to Vernon. And the Utilities Commission said no, citing the B.C. government's clean energy plan or or clean B.C. plan, saying everyone's supposed to electrify. And the reason Fortis was proposing this, according to their filing with the Utilities Commission, is to try and maintain reliability. There's growth and they're worried about being able to meet the demand. But the Utilities Commission pointed to the NDP's Clean BC plan, said, no, you're supposed to electrify. Yeah, you're supposed to electrify, right? We're moving to 100% electric vehicles. The province is encouraging people to heat their homes with electric heat pumps. Where's all the power going to come from? Let's discuss all this now with my guest, John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of BC, MLA for Nechaco Lakes. Very pleased to welcome him back. John, thanks for coming on. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Thank you. What do you think of the Utilities Commission turning down this pipeline application? Well, I think it's just pure insanity. Uh, I mean, when you look at this sort of decision, the one thing that you really need to be doing as a Utility Commission or even as a government is to make sure people have the energy they need. 
And whether that is natural gas or whether that is uh, electricity. And what you're doing is you're basically saying uh, that you're forcing people to use electricity. Heat pumps, quite frankly, don't work very well when it gets this cold. Uh, and you're and you're saying that the government, don't worry, the government will be able to provide that. And that's just, it's it's false. And so we're putting people at risk. It's just pure insanity. Okay, well, we've just gone through record high electricity demand on the weekend here. John BC Hydro saying we, we set the record here and we got through it no problem, that they were ready for it. We had enough electricity. We even had enough left over to share with Alberta. Uh, they had a, a, an alert, a grid alert in next door in Alberta on the weekend. Does that show that the system is fine, no problem? No, it doesn't. And, and the reason for that is our dams, and we're very, very fortunate in British Columbia with having the hydroelectric power that we have. Because what it means is that you can rapidly increase your, your electricity generation by putting more water through the dams. Yeah. Uh, the problem, of course, becomes is, you know, our reservoirs are a battery. And so when you're rapidly generating electricity, it also means that you're going to be needing to pile electricity down the road. So, yes, we have surge capacity, but we don't have enough over the course of the, the, uh, of the year. We are not energy self-sufficient. This government has taken away um, the, uh, the law that forced us to be energy self-sufficient. And so we are very reliant on other jurisdictions. And I think as, as British Columbians, we should be worried about that. We heard in that comment there that the reason this pipeline was turned down by the Utilities Commission was due to the BC Clean Energy Plan. We don't want to be burning this dirty fuel, right? We want to have clean electricity instead. And that's all part of the Clean Energy Plan. What do you think of that Clean Energy Plan here in BC? Well, quite frankly, it puts people in British Columbia at risk. Look, based on 2021 numbers, uh, the amount of energy BC consumes is 1,343 petajoules of energy. Petajoules is a large number. Only 16%, 1,6% comes from electricity. Now, Site C is going to add about another 15 to 2% onto that. You're still looking at needing around 84% of our energy needs coming from fossil fuels. And so we're going to be using fossil fuels for many years to come. Even if we want to be moving to using more electricity, and I think that's a good idea, we need to have a yeah. serious conversation about where that actually comes from. And right now, we do not have the capacity to be replacing wholesale our use of, of fossil fuels. Speaking of John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia. So you're not, just to pick up on a point you just made, you're not opposed to transitioning to more electric power. I mean, obviously, if we get clean hydroelectricity in British Columbia, this is a good thing, right? It's a cleaner fuel. Well, Shouldn't we be moving to that? Go ahead. Sure, but let's let's talk about doing that. So yeah. uh, it's taken, what, 30 or 40 years to build Site C, which uh, represents going to be representing about 1.8% of our energy use. Um, to build out capacity to replace the fossil fuels is going to take many, many decades. And where is it going to come from? I doubt we're ever going to be building another major dam in this province. So where are those sources going to come from? Wind and solar are unreliable. They're expensive. You know, they could be part of the mix, but they're not going to be the solution. And we need to have an honest conversation with people in this province about our power needs, about where that generation should come from, and quite frankly, what that cost is going to be to people. People need to need to have the facts and the truth, not just rhetoric. So where do you think that power should come from if we if this idea of electrifying our economy is not really realistic as you're des describing it there? What are you suggesting that we start burn we start building? coal-fired power plants or natural gas power plants? Well, that's that's the conversation we need to have in the public. So what sources do we want to have for our energy? Are we going to be considering nuclear power, for example? 
if we want yeah. to have uh, you know zero carbon emission uh, electricity. But we need to be able to have this conversation. People need to have the facts. It can't just be this rhetoric and this virtue signaling that we're seeing from our current NDP government. Do you think we should go nuke? We should get nuclear power in BC? I think we need to have a discussion. I think people are very nervous about nuclear power. And I think that's, you know, that yeah, that's something that needs to be considered. But we need to have this conversation. Where is our power going to come from? If you think about it, $17 billion to build Site C, and it's going to produce 1.8% of the power that we're going to need. Where is that power going to come from? It just, you know, you can't just rely on our neighbors. We're going to need to be able to have a serious conversation and not to mention the cost that's going to be associated with doing that yeah. and what that's going to mean for our rates. We need we, to have that. We need to have a plan over decades, not this, you know, we're going to have it all done by 2035 or 2050. Well, when you take a look at the plan that we do have, I mean, 2035 is the deadline to go to 100% electric vehicle sales in British Columbia, for example. What do you think of that deadline? Is that is that realistic? Would you, would you, would you scrap it if you can't, took power in B.C.? It's completely unrealistic. First of all, the the uh, car manufacturers are all reducing the number of, of electric vehicle commitments that they have, that the actual supply won't be there. So yeah, as, as a conservative government in British Columbia, we would scrap that plan. There's no way we, we can force people to not be able to have mobility. They're going to need to be able to buy vehicles, and they're going to need to be able to buy vehicles that they can afford. And so it is something we want to do in terms of transitioning, but let's be realistic about what that means. How many decades out it's going to take and putting plans in place. Okay, we're following this all very closely. John, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me on. All right, we continue talking about our energy system here in British Columbia. We just went through the freezer there on the weekend. It generated record high demand on the electrical power grid in British Columbia. So we broke the record for power demand. That happened on Friday, as you've been hearing in your newscast. Now, BC Hydro saying they were ready for this. They knew demand would surge with the province going into the deep freeze, and they were ready. They say they got through this. They did not need to import any additional power from outside the province. And they say we even had enough left over to help out Alberta. Next door in Alberta, they were issuing grid alerts throughout the weekend, warning the province may have to have rolling blackouts if they did not meet their energy demands. Fortunately, they did not have to do that. BC says we pitched in and helped them out, shared some of our power with them. I got Barry Penner standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this report here now. You'll hear Leif Salid here, Alberta electric system operator, and global news reporter Sarah Offen, the situation in Alberta on the weekend. Have a listen. We have exhausted uh, available supply. We then call upon our emergency reserves um, and we keep, you know, a certain amount available at all times for situations like we're facing today. For now, the strategy is conservation and hopefully some support from neighbours. Alberta is suspending electricity exports and actively sourcing imports. But it's a challenge, unfortunately, affecting much of North America, trying to keep the lights and the heat on. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Barry Penner, British Columbia's former Attorney General, former Environment Minister. Barry is now the chair of Energy Futures Initiative. Very pleased to welcome him back. Barry, thank you for coming on. You're uh, very welcome, Mike. Good to be back. It's good to have you here. Now, when we take a look at the situation, Barry, we just had record high demand on the system in BC. 
we got through it. It looks like we got through it better than Alberta did. They had to issue those grid alerts all through the weekend and threatens uh, threats of rolling blackouts that didn't happen in Alberta. But does this show the BC we're, we're in good shape here? Your thoughts? Uh, as I've been saying uh, for some time now, since they've taken on this role, uh, one of my purposes is to try and shake us out of our complacency. Uh, and as I heard you uh, with your previous guest uh, right after the top of the hour, and you correctly noted that last year, BC Hydro was a significant net importer of electricity. Right. And in fact, looking at a graph I saw on the weekend, it looks like those the rate of imports really spiked in December. December was our biggest month of net imports uh, by BC Hydro. So what that means is they're likely storing water behind our dams uh, and properly so preparing for a potential cold peak period where we would be stretched. And that is one of the the benefits of a large hydro system with storage is you can react if, as long as you have water behind the dam, uh, sufficient amounts, you can react very quickly and crank up the generation. But it's limited in duration uh, if you're in the middle of a drought like we are, how long you can do that and without additional imports. But uh, overall, last year, BC had to import about two times the, the expected output of the Site C dam. We don't have the final numbers yet from BC Hydro for the total net imports. And as because as I mentioned, it really spiked again in December. So I think that the net import number for 2023 will actually be significantly higher than 10,000 gigawatt hours. Okay, we started the show today talking about a proposed natural gas pipeline expansion project in the Okanagan that was rejected by the BC Utilities Commission here. Fortis BC wanted to expand that pipeline here because of surging demand uh, for heat, home heating, for example, and the Utilities Commission said no. What do you think of that decision? Boy, this is a $327 million pipeline project turned down by the Utilities Commission. Your thoughts? Well, uh, if I was in the Okanagan, I would be extremely concerned about that. Um, my understanding is due to the growth uh, throughout that region, population growth and industrial growth, there's more businesses starting up than trying to, um, that there's a constraint in being able to deliver uh, adequate supplies for new customers, uh, both residential and commercial. Uh, at least that's what's anticipated in the filing that uh, went before the BC Utilities Commission. Yeah. Interestingly, the Utilities Commission did not dispute that. They acknowledge that there's a there's going to be a supply crunch, um, but they rejected Fortis's plan to increase natural gas supply, uh, pointing in part to the BC government's Clean BC roadmap, which calls for a transition from natural gas heating to electrical heating, uh, potentially using heat pumps. Right. Uh, anyway, you slice it though, that would put more demand on the electrical system. And I just want to pause for a second here. While we had peak electricity demand of around 11,300 gigawatt hours uh, the other night during the cold snap, the amount of energy delivered through the natural gas system was much more than that, almost double in megawatt hour equivalents, about 21,000 megawatt equivalents through natural gas. So without natural gas, uh, we would have been very cold, all of us uh, in British Columbia. And incidentally, just on the import, uh, question, Mike. Yeah. Uh, one thing you can do because Alberta's got an open system, you can actually go on in real time and see who's trading what uh, across their border. And I'm looking at it right now. And British Columbia, according to this, BC is importing 257 megawatts right now from Alberta. So while they put out another warning 
uh, just a few minutes ago for today in Alberta. Right now, BC Hydro is actually taking 257 megawatts of electricity from Alberta. Why do you think that in Alberta, where they burn a lot of fossil fuels to generate power, they were apparently very right on the cutting edge of possible rolling blackouts next door in Alberta on the weekend? Why do you think that is the case? And, and is B.C. in danger of landing into the same boat here? I know there have been some warning signs that have been issued in various reports, warning that the B.C. The BC system is also on the brink correct yeah that was a report that i pointed out last week uh came out from the uh, national electricity reliability corporation and identifying a reliability risk starting in 2026 for british columbia um what happened in uh, alberta they actually got through thursday okay the temperature was about the same um and, and friday but they had uh, quite a bit of wind power and on Saturday, when the temperatures dropped even more, the wind stopped. So they lost about 1,200 megawatts of electricity, which is a significant amount. That's the, the proposed, uh, that's the output of the Site C dam whenever it's finished, yeah. roughly speaking. Uh, they suddenly lost that in Alberta because the wind stopped. And it was nighttime, and so there was no solar power. And suddenly they were behind the eight ball. Um, so it's it's a message that a wind Wind energy, in my view, is valuable, but it's not reliable at certain periods of time. You need to have firm power to back it up. And in Alberta, they got caught flat-footed. Uh, the wind stopped, and that took 1,200 megawatts, again, about the equivalent output of a Site C dam, off the table, and they were left scrambling. So was Puget Sound Energy, by the way, in Seattle. Uh, they were caught short, and they put out a, an alert for people to reduce electricity usage uh, in the Seattle area. And so this reinforces my message that it is a risky proposition to continue to count on your neighbors to bail you out. Uh, if you're not self-sufficient, the time will come when you're going to face a crunch. Speaking of Barry Penner, chair of Energy Futures Initiative, talking about the deep freeze on the weekend. Alberta was really teetering on the edge there. British Columbia sent them some power on the weekend. We had record high power demand here in British Columbia as well. So looking forward, Barry, as, as this demand for energy expected to increase, of course, if if it's, I mean, we got big plans to expand wind power here too, right? Is that what hydro is betting on right now, a lot of wind power? The anticipation for the upcoming call for power proposals from the private sector that the uh, the provincial government's announced and BC Hydro's announced, uh, They've been signaling that they expect much of it to come from wind power. Yeah. Uh, at least the provincial government has. BC Hydro says that they're going to be agnostic. Um, they're just putting out the ideas and waiting to see what comes forward. But the, the expectation is most of it will be in the form of wind power in terms of the proposals that come forward. What about we started the show today talking about other sources of energy that could be put on the table? What about nuclear energy? I just had the leader of the Conservative Party of BC put nuclear on the table here in BC. What do you think of that idea? Uh, well, it is being looked at in other jurisdictions as one way of producing carbon-free, firm, reliable electricity, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, there's a story this morning that in Alberta, capital power generation uh, based in Edmonton, is proposing to build, in cooperation with a, an Ontario power agency, uh, the first small nuclear reactors, small modular, I think they're called, 
yes. SMRs, small yes. modular reactors in yeah. Alberta. So that's breaking news. They're, they're proposing to build the first nuclear plants in Alberta uh, in, over the next few years if they can get regulatory approval. Let's talk about the deep freeze we just went through, warming up a little bit, still pretty cold out there. For people who love the birds in their backyard or around their home, lots of people like to take care of the birds all year round. That includes at our home. We have a bird bath in our yard that is very popular with the local birds. And of course, yeah, it froze solid here the last few days. Kind of reminded me of that Charlie Brown cartoon with Woodstock. Remember going uh, skating on the frozen bird, <laughs> the bird bath? Yeah, we brought that in and tried to get uh, thought it out. I also heard you can get a heater you can put into a bird bath to prevent it from freezing to help the birds out. I've got Ann Nightingale standing by to talk about helping backyard birds in the wintertime, especially in the deep freeze temperatures. Hummingbirds particularly need help here. Have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Linda Aylesworth here. You'll also hear here from Megan Coglin at the Wildlife Rescue Association. Have a listen. Most native birds can handle BC winters just fine, but hummingbirds are different. Most couldn't make it through the winter without us. A lot of them have come in because the feeders froze that they were relying on and then they didn't have any food and they got um, hypoglycemic. Some people keep two feeders so they can switch whenever the nectar starts to solidify. All right, let's discuss with my guest, Anne Nightingale. Anne is a longtime volunteer at the Rocky Point Bird Observatory, coordinator for the Victoria Christmas Bird Count, and I'm always delighted to have her here. Anne, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Victoria today. Is, is, it, is it warming up a little bit? Uh, yeah, it's all the way up to zero. All the way up to zero. Okay, that's good to hear. Boy, when the temperature gets really, really down there, though, and freezing, you feel bad for all those birds out there. But they know how to get through the winter time in the deep freeze, don't they? Well, a lot of them will survive. Most of them will survive. They all come with their own down jackets. So we yes. know feathers are a good insulator against cold. So that's a good thing. The hard thing right now is for them to find suitable food and water. Those are the, the things that they really need, as well as obviously some places to be safe and secure from predators and to, to stay a little bit warmer. Yeah, for sure. And we heard in that report, Anne, about hummingbirds at this time of year. Do they have a particular challenge in the winter? They do, because the, the two things that they are eating are insects and the nectar from our feeders. So right now, there's not a whole lot of insects out and about. And if people have let their feeders freeze, then that can be a problem as well. The, the good news is that some of these birds are being brought in. They go into a state of torpor overnight in, a lot, in most cases. And even though they might look like they're goners, a lot of them will be turned around and will fly away. Okay, so what do you recommend for people? Let's talk about the hummingbirds for, for a second, because I love them. Who doesn't, right? They're so beautiful. Uh, for people who have a hummingbird feeder in their yard, should they be swapping that out on a regular basis to make sure it doesn't freeze up? Sure. If you, if you have the time and the patience to do that, that is one way to do it. The other thing is to look for a way to keep the uh, hummingbird feeder thawed without having to swap it in and out. And so there's quite a market right now this week for hummingbird heaters. 
They yeah. will work down to about four, minus four degrees. But when it gets beyond that, they'll even then they'll start to freeze up. I've uh, done a homemade one, but I found a really simple thing that, that you can try at your house uh, is if you have an incandescent porch light, just put the feeder right next to that and leave it turned on. Okay. Heat from the incandescent bulb will often be enough to keep your feeder thawed. And then you don't have to keep going in and out, swapping them out. Um, so that's one easy solution. Definitely, if you have a way of, of heating your feeder, some people are using seed mats, hmm. like for starting planters, right, and sitting right. feeders right on those. That way they're they're thawed out, and they're also out all night. What we do find in this very cold weather is that some hummingbirds are seeking out food in the middle of the night, and it's pretty tough to find. Yeah, I bet it is. Speaking to Ann Nightingale, Rocky Point Bird Observatory, talking about backyard birds in the deep freeze. How about a, I've heard you can get a heated bird bath as well, so the bird bath doesn't freeze over. Is that true? That is true and dangerous. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So in, in this weather, you don't really want to get the birds soaking wet. Mm. The, the bird bath is really good, though, for them getting a drink. But what you want to do is actually stop them from doing their normal bathing in that in that environment because you can know what happens if you get your hair wet or your feathers wet and get out into minus 10. It freezes almost instantly. So uh, if you have a heated bird bath, what I would certainly suggest is that you put pebbles or, or those glass things that you can get from the florist shops or um, to put into vases yeah. in there so that the birds can come and drink the water but don't get soaked in it. Okay, really good tip there. How about putting out some extra food? Like lots of people will have a bird feeder in their yard. Should they be putting out more food at this time of year? You'll definitely want to keep an eye on what's happening in your yard, what birds are coming and and what they're eating, because you want to put out the right kind of food for them as well. Certainly, I put out food throughout the winter, in fact, throughout the year, but in varying quantities. And there's a lot more birds in my yard right now coming to the feeders. So, yes, putting out more. Black oil sunflower seed is a really good food. Suet, really great. A lot of birds can get a lot of energy from that fat. So those are good foods to put out. You might even look at some of the homemade suet recipes to give it a little bit of extra oomph over the commercial grades. Oh really? You do you make your you make your own suet then? Do you, Anne? I do. I do. Um, sometimes depends if I have the the time. It's very easy to make, right? You just uh, use some lard and some peanut butter and some oats and a few other things that you can throw in there, and it's uh, more of a crumbly kind rather than a a block. So you can make it into little pieces. The blocks people right now are finding are are freezing pretty solid, and so the birds have to chip pretty hard to get the uh, the fat off of them. But there are, there are lots of options available. You know, some people say, well, shouldn't we just let nature take its course? Mm. And we can, we can say, yes, that would be one option for us. But the fact is we've changed their natural environment so much and made it so much harder for them to actually live off the land in the way that, that they used to, particularly in our urban and residential areas, that I don't personally see any harm in trying to to make up for that a little bit by providing a little bit of extra supplement during these really harsh times. I'm glad to hear you say that because we certainly practice that at, at our family, and I love to see them in our yard, especially at this time of year, if they're if they're getting some badly needed food and water for sure. And that 
That suet. I always thought, boy, if I was a bird, I would love to, I would love that suet. I mean, that's got to be especially valuable at this time of the year, wouldn't it? For that high protein. Yeah, yeah, it's the combination of protein. A lot of insect eaters, if they if find themselves in a place in the winter that they might not normally be, they will come to the suet. So you might actually see warblers or uh, or kinglets or other birds that you wouldn't normally see at a feeder come to your suet feeder, especially when it's cold like this. Are there any type of birds, speaking of looking for those different type of species, are there any birds that you're more likely to see at this time of year or a lot of them have flown away? Uh, actually, there are a number of birds that are in the uh, Vancouver, Victoria area only in the winter. Most oh. of our ducks are winter birds here, and particularly our sea ducks. You know, try and find some of those birds in July, and you'll you'll have a really hard time. But also, even some of the sparrows that we see, and uh, and some of the finches that we see, like pine siskins and red crossbills, we tend to see a lot more of those in the winter. Varied thrushes, the the birds that look kind of like robins, but Mm. kind of fancy robins, come down from the hills in the winter, as do the Stellar's jays. So, yes, we definitely see some different birds in the winter than we might see in the summer here. And thank you for all the valuable tips at this time of year, and happy birding to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.